So as we mentioned, we're in a special season right now called Love Gives. And where does that even come from, that idea? It is based in the heart of God. And we see this in the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world, what did he do? That he gave. And so when we do that, we are really imitating the heart of God. But here's the challenge, right? We live in a world that is often broken, that can be very dark and be very difficult and very discouraging. And that can lead us to maybe having a sense of hopelessness in this world. And we think, well, maybe there's a good day coming, but here and now is, is really, really hard. And I would say right now as a culture and as a nation, we face that challenge and there are many people who are feeling hopeless. So where is the hope? And not just religious rhetoric, not just spiritual words, but is there something that is real and true to which we can tie our lives there's a poll not that long ago, it was done in uh, 2022, and the title of it was Hopeless Nation. Just a couple results from that survey. Two in three Americans don't think they'll ever see positive social change. That our trend line is only down, there's not an up that is coming. And then with younger generations, 51% of young Americans feel down, depressed, or hopeless. So where is the hope? What I want to do is I want to jump into a passage that was spoken to a group of people at a very dark time. They had just been defeated by the largest, most dominant nation of the time. It's called Babylon. They had lost in battle that nation called Israel. And not only had they been on the losing side of a war, but now many of them were going to be carted away into exile. Where is the hope in a moment like that? And at a time like that, God speaks words that we're going to see here. And I think what we'll discover all these years later, having the hindsight that we do, is that this was not just warm, fuzzy ideas, but it was something that God was going to back up with his own actions. So let's jump right into that passage, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, you notice right away that there's a repetition of the word comfort, and whenever you see that in the Bible, we should pay attention to that because that clues us in that there is a point of emphasis that is there. Why would this have that repetition? Well, let me give you a little bit of a context. We're jumping into the middle of Isaiah chapter 40, and if you want to sometime go back and read chapters 1 through 39, can I just recommend that you be in a good emotional place when you do that because it's kind of difficult? Let me give you a little bit of an indication. What makes up chapters 1 through 39? Judgment and warning and destruction. And a God who is absolutely holy and righteous and committed to justice looks at the world and makes this sobering declaration that there is so much injustice in this world. So much is not the way that it should be. And the God of holiness calls it as it is. And the kind of issues that he talks about, things like oppressing the poor and greed and violence and immorality of all different kinds and people not honoring their commitments and their marriage commitment in so many other ways, not lifting up the family. 
And as we see that, it would get very easy for God, you know, to call that about the nations around Israel, but you know who's included in that? Israel as well. And the reality is God's holiness and His sense of justice is something we need to take very seriously, that God is committed to that. And in one sense, we all stand before a holy God, and there's some issues that we all have. And I don't think it takes a lot of us, you know, a lot of convincing for us to recognize that that's the case. And it's part of what was going to lead them away into exile. And maybe that's why it's so surprising that as chapter 40 begins, it begins these, with these words that are like a whiplash in the other direction. Comfort, comfort my people. And why would God say that? Here's how the passage goes on. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. He's speaking in the past tense about something that is just about to happen because God stands apart from time and he sees the end from the beginning and everything in between. That her hard service has been completed. Another way to translate hard service is her struggle. You know, her battle in the brokenness and in the world filled with injustice that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And this signals a change in the entire book. 1 through 39 are filled with some hard things, but then things change. Chapters 40 through 66, not about judgment, but about salvation. Not about warning, but about encouragement. Not about destruction, but about restoration, about redemption. And what this helps us to understand is that God's ultimate purpose, even in the moments when he calls it like it is, is not judgment, but salvation, redemption, of making things right and bringing things into alignment in the direction that they should be all along. But did you notice something? And maybe as we read through this, I don't know if this jumped out to you, where it talks about receiving double for all her sins. Does it sound like and feel like God is saying there's going to be a double punishment for all the things that have been unjust? But that's not what it's saying at all. In fact, there's nothing about punishment in this verse. In fact, he talks about you know, the sins being paid for. And so the double for all her sins is actually not a double punishment. It is a double payment. And there's something so important, so valuable that we need to understand about what is being communicated here. And this is repeated over and over again in the New Testament here, that what we have in putting our hope and trust in God is a double payment. Well, what does that mean? Theologians refer to this as double imputation. And if that sounds like we're cutting off limbs and things, no, that's amputation. We're talking about imputation. And imputation means to credit something to somebody's account. And there's a double payment, a double credit. See, here's the way that we may view what a relationship with God looks like. That I put my hope and trust in Him, and what God can do is forgive me for all the things that I have done. And that is true. That He can make payment for that. I mean, we just celebrated communion where we celebrate Jesus' body broken and His blood shed, and that was for the forgiveness of sins. But then we might think, and now it's up to me. What Jesus did has now given me a chance, and now I got to make it right, or I got to get myself together as I go forward. But this verse and everything connected to the life of Jesus who came as a baby at Christmas time, says, no, the news is even better than that. 
what he did in his coming. And when we put hope and trust in him is he makes double payment. Not only does he take care of our past and credit that to himself when he made that sacrifice on a cross, he also guarantees us full acceptance that we don't just get, you know, to a point where now it's even and now you got to get yourself together and you better get busy and you better do better than you did before. But he says, I'll take your past and then I'll credit my perfect track record to you. And so there is forgiveness and acceptance. Picture it this way. If you were an inmate on death row, and all of a sudden the governor calls with a pardon and you think, well, that's great. You know, now that sentence against me has been taken away. You know, that doesn't really account for the rest of your life. You get out of prison. I've talked to people who have struggled, you know, with being on the other side of incarceration. And there's not a lot of people offering really great jobs on the other side of that. Can you imagine being pardoned from death row and then somebody going, hey, and why don't you come right into my company and have an upper management position? That's not how it works. Nobody is saying, hey, you just got off death row. Would you like to marry my daughter? You know, it just doesn't seem like those two things go together. But here is what these words are saying. That Jesus made double payment. Your sins have been paid for and you are fully accepted. God has taken you home as his child. And you are fully accepted in him. And people sometimes say this, you know, we talk a lot about grace around here, and we do. Don't we need to obey God? And I might say this in response, that if we don't understand that we are fully accepted in what God has done for us by making this double payment, we can't obey God. Not in the way the Bible talks about. Because if we think it's now up to us, we're earning it, we're working for it, we are even leveraging and using God so that by our performance we can get all the good stuff that comes with God. But when we understand that we are fully accepted, the past has been dealt with and the future is secure, <laughs> obedience really is a joyful response to all that God has done. And that's what it means to obey Him. But for people who struggle with a sense of guilt, and maybe that brings some darkness into your days, here's what I think Isaiah is telling us. God's grace is greater than my guilt. And yeah, one of the things we all share in standing before a holy God is that we've all come up short in some way. And maybe you've done better than me, or maybe I've done better than you, but we all have a gap. How does that gap get taken care of? Our sins have been paid for. A double payment has been made. Past is dealt with. Future is secure. And then the passage goes on, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. And I don't know if these words remind you of anything. These were part of the stirring words in the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It makes me also think of a song Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me 
from getting to you, babe. Now, the babe is a bit of a paraphrase in this passage, but the rest of it, I think, applies, right? And it's talking about the wilderness, and it's talking about mountains coming down and valleys being filled in, and then it goes on. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What in the world is that talking about? Everybody in the ancient world knew this language is king language. In the ancient world, when a king wanted to go to a part of his empire and see what was happening there or just, you know, make some sort of a trip there, he didn't just travel the way that normal people would travel through that kingdom. When the king says, I want to go to that place, you know what they did? They built a road. They made a highway because after all, the king is coming. And that symbolized something. It symbolized a couple things. One is the authority of the king, that he has the resources and the capability to tame the wilderness that's out there because he is in control. And it also brings with it this idea of a king bringing healing, that when authority is used in all the right and positive ways, it produces a positive effect in the world around it. And so it symbolized both of those things. But Isaiah's language here is saying, this is not just any old king who's coming, just like all the other kings, because the language kind of goes across the barriers of all the things that would apply to any human being. Because this is not, hey, let's build a bridge across that valley, and let's find a pass through those mountains over there. This is the valleys will be filled in, and the mountains will be brought low. Everything is going to be level. There will be smooth traveling. This is the one who's coming, the king over the whole world who's greater than any king. And who will see it? All the people will see it together. He's the king of all, whether they recognize it or not. And he is coming to transform the wilderness and the world is pictured as this broken wilderness, but he's coming to make it better. And his authority is there and his healing comes with him. And it will change everything. And then the passage goes on. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. What in the world is he talking about now? The grass withers and the flower falls because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. What he's telling us here is this, that God's power is available when I am weak. Remember to whom these words were spoken. They had just lost the battle and were going to be carted away into captivity by a nation called Babylon. If you looked at Babylon at the time, it was large and in charge and it looked like Babylon would survive forever and conquer everyone. But God says, oh, you know, people are a little bit more fragile than that. And the kingdoms do not always stand the way that we think they do and the way that they will. If you want to look at the kingdom of Babylon today, you know what it looks like? It looks like ruins. And the picture there that God is saying is, yeah, there's a dark day that you're in right now. But that's not the way it will always be. That the dark days will not always be present. And when he says the words about the grass withers, the flower falls, what endures the word of our God endures forever. There is something eternal and something more powerful than the most powerful kingdoms of this world 
and maybe even a culture in which we live today that seems to bring a lot of darkness to us. And so what Isaiah is telling us is make no mistake about it, God will have the final word. Things will not always be the way that they are. There's another day coming. And in the same book of Isaiah, we get a picture, a little bit of a picture of what the final you know, day is going to look like. See, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, not the darkness, not, not the difficulties, not the struggles, nor will they come to mind. And then you get descriptions like this. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Natural and long-term enemies will sit together in community like they have never done so before. Cowboy fans and Raider fans sharing a meal and not giving each other grief. Imagine, you know, a day like that. There's a little bit of a true picture of that day, and I don't know if you saw this um, article when it came out. It went a little bit viral. But there was a family that owned two pit bulls, and pit bulls have reputations, right? And the, the reputation of pit bulls is not always the best. They can be a little bit, you know, just strong. Well, they go to the park, and there's a magpie there that is wounded. And so they're able to grab this magpie that can't fly at the time. They bring it home. They nurse it back to health. It can fly now, but it doesn't leave. Apparently, it likes its new environment. And so now, they have become friends. And not only do they just like to hang out, you know, in the morning, they watch the world go by, you know, on the stoop there, and talk about life. I'm not sure, you know, what they're able to communicate with each other. Um, they also take naps together. And they even roll around on the ground and play together. <laughs> Natural and long-term enemies living together in harmony, in community. And that's just a little bit of a picture of what God says is another day coming. And things will be the way that they should be. And the things that were dark and difficult and a struggle will be remembered no more. But the dark days are not going to last. There's another day coming and God will have the final word. One more thing in this passage Isaiah is trying to communicate to us is that God's love is deeper than my discouragement. It's easy to get discouraged in a world full of darkness. You who bring good news to Zion, go high on a mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, what? Here is your God. Who's coming? The king of the world. The one who is coming to make double payment. The one who is righteous and just and holy. And the one who is full of power. And we were singing these words just a few moments ago. Here comes heaven. And at Christmas time, that's who came. God the Son left heaven. Here is your God. And things would be different. And if we wonder, well, we're reading into that a little bit too much. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And one of the frequent symbols of God's power is the arm of God. He rules with his mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. 
And Isaiah is telling us, you know, there are multiple attributes that belong to God. And we, to have an accurate picture of God, we need to grasp and, and understand all of those attributes, not just one. If we just latch on to one, we're going to wind up with some cartoonish, distorted image of who God is. But he is righteous and holy and just. He is powerful and he is also very compassionate. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He has a mighty arm. But what does he want to do with that arm? He wants to gather his lambs in his arms and carry them close to his heart. He gently leads them, those who have young. He's a God of power, and he's a God of compassion. And he is the one who is coming. And then it jumps to the end of this chapter, and these are some familiar words, and maybe you've heard them before. But those who hope, and notice where the hope is placed, in the Lord, what does it mean to hope? Is it wishful thinking? No, hope means that we follow after him. Hope means that we are engaged with the things that God is engaged in. Hope means that we are, we're all in in the things of God. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. Now, do you notice something about how that progression unfolds in that verse? I think if we were writing something like this, we'd begin with walking, then we go to running, and then we would go to soaring. It should be moving up, right, and finish on the high note. But it goes the other way. It starts with soaring, then goes to running, and then finishes with walking. Why is that? Because walking is the point. That in a world like ours, you may soar on occasion, and that's good. You may run on occasion, and that's good. But even in the dark days, even in a broken world, you can walk. What does it mean to walk? You can endure. That every day you can take a step forward. Every day you can continue to journey with your great God. Walking is the point, and you can endure. Put your hope in the Lord. We live in the land of some dark days. What are some of the ingredients? Guilt, weaknesses, discouragement. And maybe you're feeling some of that and you wonder, where is the hope? And I think Isaiah is telling us in no uncertain terms that dark days are this darkness will not last. There's another day coming. And the God who invaded human history 2,000 years ago says that there's another day. But even here and now, you can endure. How do we do that? Knowing that God's grace is greater than my guilt. Even the reality about me and you, there is a grace that is greater than that. There's more grace in him than there is sin in you and me. God's power is available when I am weak. There is something eternal, even in a world where kingdoms rise and fall. And maybe our fortunes rise and fall as well. And God's love is deeper than my discouragement. And that there's a God who has come to make double payment. The dark days are numbered. There is Would you bow your heads together with me as I pray?
And just before I do, you know, could it be that you have never taken that step of faith and trust? And maybe you've never entertained the idea even that by putting trust in the Jesus of the Bible, there's a double payment. Your past and all the things that dishonor God, he made payment for that. And he also credits to your account all of his righteousness. And your future is secure in him. If you've never taken that step, we can just acknowledge to God just between you and God, just the truth about you. And ask him to forgive you. Ask him to make you right. Ask him to apply that double payment to your account. The good news is even better than maybe we hoped. And Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what this season helps us understand. And even in that ancient promise, those are not just words that are poetic, but they are words that describe what you actually did in space and time in human history. That those words describe the heart of God and your desire for people like us to belong to you. And so God, may our hearts more and more just follow after yours. May we express in our lives in real ways what belongs to you. And God, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for hope. Thank you that we can live in this day and know that the dark days will not last. The dark days are numbered. And we have that on the word of our faithful God. So may our hope be in you as we journey each and every day. And we ask and pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.